The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Welcome to the Bloomberg PL podcast. I'm Pim Fox along with my co host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and at Bloomberg.com. Well, in mid-October, David Kudla, the chief executive, the chief investment strategist for Mainstay Capital Management, came on the program and said, pay attention to regional banks. Let's find out. Was it a profitable call? David Kudla, thanks very much for being with us. Hi, Pim. All right. So go ahead. Tell us how that regional bank call turned out. Well, depending on the index we use, but if we look at uh, KRE, that index for or that ETF for regional banks, we're actually up about. 34% uh, since that uh, recommendation on your show a couple months ago. All right. So if you're up that much, are you taking any profits? No. Uh, and actually, we've added two positions since then. You know, back in in uh, September, October timeframe, we liked regional banks on the thesis that the Fed was going to be raising rates, uh, steepening the yield curve, improving NIM, net interest margin for the banks. That benefits the regional banks even more than money center banks, although all benefit. Since then, with the election, uh, we now have the prospect of uh, lower regulatory headwinds for the banks. So that's actually been another catalyst to move banks even higher. So, you know, we, we, we like the financials. We could get a pullback through here, obviously, at any time. But like the financials, specifically the banks going into 2017. So good to go for banks in 2017. How about uh, we'd look at domestically oriented small cap stocks? Well, you know, when we when we look at what's happened since the election and what that means for the stock market, and the election really was, we believe, a game changer in terms of uh, overall outlook and investment strategy. Uh, you know, we're concerned about uh, what uh, tariffs, trade wars, immigration policies, those related, uh, you know, the, the rhetoric from uh, President-elect Trump, uh, what may become policy, how that impacts multinational conglomerates. Uh, so that gives us an inward focus, uh, what we call the America First Trade, small companies that that uh, tend to be more domestically oriented uh, that will that look better on a relative basis now to large caps. And certainly saw that big pop in small caps after the election, a uh, little bit more muted returns over the past month, uh, up and down days like today. But we still think we like small caps over, we think small caps will do well and like small caps over large caps going into 2017. Large caps, uh, not so much. iShares Russell 2000 ETF, is that the best way to take advantage of the strategy? Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to take advantage of the strategy for you know those investors that are ETF buyers. IWM uh, is a good way to invest in small caps. For mutual fund investors, um, we like a mutual fund that plays on two of our themes, which is financials and small cap. 
uh, Victory Integrity Discovery, MMEAX. It's a small cap fund with 34% of it allocated to financials. So plays on both our themes. Uh, a fund we got into right after the election has done well, and, and we think we'll continue to going into 2017. Same question to you. Year to date, that Victory Integrity Discovery Fund is up more than 30%. Mm-hmm. No one ever went broke taking a profit. No one ever went broke taking a profit, and you could take profits here if you've only owned it for a couple of months or all year and obviously feel good about that. But, you know, as we look towards, as tactical asset allocators, where do we think we have opportunity? Where do we think we have risk? You know, we've seen uh, small caps trade more up and down through here. And again, you know, a lot of a lot of uh, the Trump themes depend on how much of his campaign rhetoric or his campaign statements become policy. Uh, but right now, we think that you know that that hope that investors have have played on. Uh, we think it's at least six months before uh, any of that can be disproved. So you know, we we think that you know if we talk about financials, talk about the banks that have been. Um, had a lot of pressure because of regulatory headwinds the last eight years. Uh, we, th- we just believe they have a long runway ahead. So even though we may get some sell-offs, uh, we think financials have a long runway and, and small caps still have a favorable environment here in a Trump presidency. Tell me about energy and what you expect to happen with energy prices. Uh, oil trading around $53 a barrel. And maybe just also tell us about domestic versus the multinational integrated oil companies. So when we look at uh, at energy that that's had a good run here in the fourth quarter, and people are looking for, um, you know, a, a better energy sector going into 2017. Certainly in the first quarter, we have great year-over-year comparables because oil is now trading in the 50s, where we hit our low of $26 and change back on February 11th. So we have good year-over-year comps uh, for a couple of quarters here, uh, but we also believe that. Uh, there's there may be too much hope uh, in the energy sector on this OPEC deal of OPEC countries and non-OPEC countries for two reasons. Um, every time there's been an OPEC deal, there have been countries that have cheated. We don't think this will be indifferent, any different. There's even more countries involved here. Uh, also, uh, you know, we believe that U.S. frackers control energy prices at the margin now rather than OPEC. You think they're the and- swing producer? That's right. And when oil gets into the 50s, and we may on this deal get oil up into the 60s, that makes a lot more of those uh, uh, the shale oil producers, hydraulic fracturing, just more profitable. They'll turn on the spigot. So we've seen the well count in the U.S. going up since May steadily. So, you know, we are now a, a large producer of oil. And yeah, really, we believe the U.S. controls prices at the margin as much or more than OPEC at this point. Tell me about indexers and the passive versus active debate when it comes to selecting stocks. Well, you know, we've seen uh, actually passive investing do very well over the past several years. We're we're coming up in three months on the – or about two and a half months on the eighth year anniversary of a stock market that's gone up every year. And and bonds have been in a secular bull market – uh, for 35 years, which we think ended in July with the lows in yields in July. So through that period, passive investing in a stock index or bond index has worked very well 
for the past five, six, seven years. Um, but we think as as we get into, you know, look at what's happened with small caps, some of the different sectors here, uh, specifically bonds, the route we had in bonds in November and into December, uh, we've seen a pause. But look, monetary policy and fiscal policy are pointing towards higher interest rates going forward. So bond indexes will have a problem that are very interest rate sensitive uh, bonds in those sector in that index. And this stock, you know, uh, trees don't grow to the sky, so this stock market will have trouble. And when we get into those more turbulent times or maybe a protracted downturn, that's where an active manager can, can, uh, can add real value. Thank you very much for adding value to us. David Kudla is the Chief Executive, Chief Investment Strategist, Mainstay Capital Management. This is Bloomberg. Public health exchange enrollment in the United States, it's on track to meet the federal government's target through week seven. Yes, open enrollment period. Open enrollment is now up 6% versus the same period a year ago. But what does that mean for the stocks, the companies associated with Healthcare services. Well, we want to find out. So we have Jason McGorman. He is our Bloomberg intelligence expert and analyst on medical devices and healthcare services. Jason, thanks very much for being with us. Thank you for having me. So, um, Jason, uh, we want to see what the future brings for public uh, public healthcare companies. What are the what are the how do they form into the different groups uh, based on what you're reading is of potential changes to the Affordable Care Act. Sure. So there, there are two major groups here, and the one is hospitals have gotten the biggest uh, boost to their earnings from uh, the Affordable Care Act because uh, about 20 million people uh, have gained insurance coverage either through Medicare or uh, through the what are called the exchanges uh, through the web. Um, so if there's some sort of repeal, uh, then hospitals stand to lose some of their earnings because people will no longer have insurance. So that's group one. Group two being the health insurers. Well, let's just give it an example, right? Um, the tenant health as well as community and life point, right? Those are that's in that group. Yeah. So okay. Yeah, so the biggest uh, exposure there is really tenant and community, as you mentioned, about 12% of their earnings from right. the Affordable Care Act. All right, got it. So that's group one. Go ahead. Yeah, so group two, the health insurers, as you probably heard, United Health, uh, Aetna, and Humana have been losing uh, a fair amount of money, up to $850 million this year. And that's because, even though the exchanges are, are running on track with the government's target, a lot of the young, healthy individuals have not been signing up. Um, so in the near term, they've actually been very costly for insurers. Um, so in the near term, it could actually be a positive for a lot of the insurers if there's some sort of repeal. Uh, but in the longer term, you know, it could take away an earnings opportunity for them. And the companies there include Anthem, Cigna, Centene, and Molina Healthcare. Yeah, so those are the companies that are uh, staying in the exchanges for 2017 or even expanding. So uh, depending on how enrollment shakes out this year, and let's say uh, fewer people sign up because they're worried about repeals, then you know, there's some concern that maybe they'll continue to lose money in 2017. 
Well, I noted that in your report, you say that about 40% of signups were new consumers versus 22% last year. This is for the public exchanges. And that means that the risk pool may actually deteriorate. Can you explain why? Yeah, so insurers price their premiums based on members that they've seen before and they know how often they're going to the hospital and what kind of treatments they're getting. So if they get a brand new pool of patients they've never seen, it's very difficult for them to know how much they should be charging. So the more new consumers coming in, and especially the number that change, uh, the harder it is for them to price it appropriately and higher risk that they you know, could be losing money again next year. Are there particular health insurance companies that are dealing with the Affordable Care Act better than others? I keep thinking, for example, of your note on Centene and their conservative outlook on exchanges. That's right. So Centene and Molina Healthcare are the two insurers really that have earned uh, a profit on the exchanges. And I think that's because they focus on uh, the lower income population that largely gets tax credits. And that population, uh, they don't have uh, a the income levels to really be going to uh, the hospital that often other than for call it emergency situations. So I think that they're probably doing a little bit better there because of the, the patients that they're focusing on, whereas Anthem and United, they focus really on everybody. So that's probably why they're kind of hitting the sweet spot there. And Jason, just to note, right, United Health has already announced that it will not be participating in the exchanges in 2017. Yeah, so they, they will be there, but they're scaling back so much that it's going to be, call it, you know, 1% of their revenue and, and even less of earnings. So, you know, for them and for Aetna and Humana, all three of those companies have announced significant scaling back. Um, so you're right. For those companies, it's it's an afterthought for investors. It's really Anthem, Cigna, um, and to a lesser degree, Centene, where, where the focus is for 2017. I just want to take you back to hospitals for just a second and get your thoughts on HCA and what their strategy is based on what the current environment is for the Affordable Care Act and what is likely to affect their strategy. Sure. So they have the most exposure to the the states where um, public exchange enrollment has grown significantly, and so for them, uh, that's about five to six percent of their their earnings. And so, if the exchanges are um, scaled back by Republicans, which they can do, there's actually a bill going to uh, the Senate floor um, in the first part of January that's going to be voted on to which could take away tax credits for the exchanges. So that's something that could impact them significantly. Uh, But from there, you know, it's a matter of do they start to adjust their business model for the shift from, you know, these longer-term inpatient admissions to outpatient, which some of their peers like Tenant Health have done, uh, which may be wiser in the long term. Well, you know, just taking a look at HCA Holdings, the shares are higher by 8.5% this year. They're based in Nashville. Mergers and acquisitions, Jason, the Department of Justice, they've got their hands full. What is the outcome, do you believe, of the two major mergers or merger attempts? Sure. So the the health insurance industry uh, has tried to really scale up between Aetna and Humana as well as Anthem and, and Cigna. And so 
the risk to hospitals there is that, you know, much larger insurers can push back on on reimbursement. So you're right. I think it's it's going to be tough for those insurers to get those deals through. We're expecting uh, resolution here within about a month or so. Um, it's unlikely that, that both deals go through, um, even low probability that either go through. But if one does go through, then hospitals really have to decide if they can scale up as well. I want to thank you very much for spending time with me. Um, Jason uh, McGorman, he is uh, our healthcare services analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Great stuff on the world of uh, healthcare. Two decades ago, nuclear energy provided the power for nearly one-fifth of the world's electricity. Now it generates only about half that share. Of course, we've lived through the Fukushima disaster in Japan. Japanese once accounted for about 11 nuclear power plants. They've taken those offline. What's the future of nuclear power in the context of a huge write-down on the part of Toshiba's Westinghouse unit? Here to tell us all about nuclear power is Kit Connellich. He is our senior industrials and utilities analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Kit, always a pleasure. You start off by telling us the sort of state of affairs when it comes to nuclear power in the United States and around the world, and then how that fits in to the Westinghouse unit of Toshiba. Very good, uh, Pim. As you say, uh, the share of nuclear power has declined worldwide. That's mainly because in countries like China, there's a lot of coal being built. Now, in the U.S., nuclear stayed about the same at about 20 percent of power output compared to about 30-some percent for gas and 30-some percent for coal and renewables gaining share. So the issue now going forward is going to be which of those technologies, fuels, is is most cost-effective and which is most desirable primarily for environmental reasons. Toshiba and Westinghouse, what happened there? It looks like when Toshiba bought... Uh, Chicago Bridge and Iron, right. their subsidiary, CBI, CB&I, right? uh, their Westinghouse unit specifically bought them a year ago. Westinghouse and CB&I were both working on uh, the nuclear projects for Southern Company and Scana, which are the only two nuclear construction projects going on in the U.S. And it looks like uh, Toshiba has just finally uh, gotten through a lot of the numbers about what their builder exposure is here and under their contracts it looks like they've concluded that uh, it's going to cost them a lot more to to build this thing than they're allowed to recover from southern and scana well it seems as though this is a very uh constant refrain in the nuclear power industry or in the building of any big infrastructure project. I was looking at some details about a nuclear power plant. I believe it's being built by the French company Arriva, and it's being built in Finland. And this thing is nine years over uh, uh, budget, uh, nine years over budget, and the original budget, I believe, was $4 billion, and even that has now doubled. I mean, you can't even figure out when it's going to open. Well, the the two in the U.S. now are, are currently projected at, 16 billion and 14 billion uh which is 
really an order of magnitude higher per kilowatt of, of construction compared to a gas plant. So that gives you an idea right away why nuclear has, has a cost issue, certainly in the U.S., because you can't make that up on the production side, given how cheap gas is. So that's the issue for nuclear going forward and why currently I would say no U.S. utility is real likely to start a nuclear construction project. If you have the other fuels available for any kind of reasonable price, it makes it hard to to want to do it. Now, if you're in China or India and your labor costs are lower and maybe your fuel costs are higher uh, and maybe you want to cut down on the pollution from all all of, of the coal plants, then you might say, eh, and you have a government that's more capable of enforcing, uh, you know, the pass-through of these costs than in the U.S. All of those factors may make it very different in, in say, Asia to build a nuclear plant than in the U.S. going forward. And the state in the, uh, in the U.S. is that we have a new technology to extract natural gas from the ground, fracturing, which has led to the really boom in generating electricity from natural gas. Yeah, gas, as a lot of people are aware now, is extremely low cost. I think they're the uh, CEO of, of Dynagy, a, a big power producer, was on Bloomberg TV this morning, and he was talking about how, uh, you know, I think for less than a dollar he was buying gas recently. So, uh, you know, by the time you work through those numbers, the production costs from a gas plant are just prohibitive compared to really any of the other technologies. So that that's really the issue there. I want you to be an environmentalist for just a moment and explain how the environmental movement and the effort to reduce greenhouse gases and the buildup of other gases in the atmosphere may align with nuclear power. Nuclear has no emissions. And so when when you say, okay, over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, should we shut down nuclear plants because some people don't, you know, might fear them? Or should we keep these zero emissions plants in place and maybe add other zero emission technologies like wind and solar and gradually at least phase out the coal plants and even gas plants produce CO2. I mean, they don't produce a whole lot of particulates that cause real severe health problems near term. Uh, you know, I think you have to conclude that having nuclear is, if you have it built already, the marginal production cost is competitive. And that's really, you know, it, it's scary to think about building a new plant financially. But when it's already in place and you're generating the power, it's it can be very very competitive power, and it has no emissions. Thanks very much. Kit Connellich, our senior utilities analyst for Bloomberg Intelligence. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at iTunes, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm out there on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state 
influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com.